Uh, Jeremiah was, was Judah's last hope. They didn't realize that, uh, but they should have realized it, especially because just a hundred years prior, God had sent people like Hosea and other prophets to warn the northern tribes, Israel, that judgment was coming, uh, and they passionately preached for repentance, uh, and they did not listen. And in fact, some of Jeremiah's message uh, is going to go back to a very similar to some of Hosea's exhortations to the northern tribes, uh, because God is trying to reach now Judah, the southern tribe, and um, unfortunately, as we already know, we already know the end from, we already know what's going to happen, uh, and that's why Jeremiah is called the weeping prophet. He weeps a lot in the beginning because his message is of doom. He offers hope at the end, uh, but there is no one, that we know of no one responded to Jeremiah's message. So is Jeremiah a waste? Was his whole message a waste? No. Just like Ezekiel. In fact, they're very similar, though at different times. God sent Ezekiel, and even clearer, God said to Ezekiel, I'm going to send you to a stiff-necked and, and stubborn people, and I'm going to tell you ahead of time, they're going to reject your message because they're rejecting me. But his challenge to, to Ezekiel was, listen, whether they will hear or whether they will not hear, you go and preach what I want. And, and that's exactly what Jeremiah did. Uh, and he, he loved these people. He prayed for them. He wept with them. So we're going to pick up, and tonight we're going to move into verses 23 through 25. And uh, just to kind of go back, God used, just from last week, God used three strong images to describe the, the sin and the shame of Israel. Now, again, remember, we are uh, Jeremiah specifically uh, ministering to Judah, the northern kingdom, Israel, is no more. They've already been brought into Assyrian captivity. But Jeremiah uses the, the phrase Judah and Israel simultaneously because now that's Judah's all that's left. And so there, that's Israel as far as you know those that still have a land. And so he uses these, cha- these terms interchangeably. And uh, so he uses three strong images in verse, between verses 20 and 22, I believe it is, uh, to describe Israel's sin and shame. Number one, they're like a prostitute. Number two, they're like a wild vine. And, and number three, they're like something that's so dirty that no matter how much scrubbing, no matter how much lie, which is the word niter in the King James, lie, uh, niter, or soap, no matter how much they use, no matter how much detergent they use, they're not going to get the stain out. You know, that's the way they are. At beginning of verse 20, we're, we're going to jump, go back to verse 20, which we looked at last week. But here's, here's their dilemma. Uh, this, God sums it up again, which he's done many times. You, you know, he's just in the two chapters. He summarized, here's, here's my problem. You know, you've forsaken the covenant in various ways. And, and verse 20, he says, For of old time I have broken thy yoke and burst thy bands. Uh, most likely this is a reference to... to well, obviously bondage, uh, but clearly Egyptian bondage. He was in; they were in Egypt, and God delivered them. And He already talks about that. He uses this phrase, "Deliver." I rescued you, and He uses that throughout Jeremiah. He goes back to that. Um, so, for of old time, I have broken thy yoke and burst thy bands. And then the next statement. Now, this is Israel's reply, Judah's reply. And thou saidest, "I will not transgress." Now, this has been a pattern for Israel. You know, God will, 
protect them. God will deliver them. God will rescue them. And initially their response will be, thank you so much. And, And they made a commitment. I will not transgress. And now remember, at the Mount Sinai, they entered into a covenant with the Lord. And now comes the charge. They said, I will not transgress. Verse 20, when upon every high hill and under every green tree thou wanderest. Now, there's significant meaning here. Because this is something that he alludes to and references a lot. He's not simply talking about them going for a walk, a nature walk. You know, every high hill and every green tree thou wanderest. This is a specific reference to the idolatry of the land of Canaan where they were going. Uh, They worshipped their false gods, the gods of the Canaanites. They worshipped on the high hills and the green trees. He's going to make allusions to this throughout the whole book of Jeremiah is that they worshipped the trees. They carved them, they made images. And so this is a reference clearly to their idolatry. And that's why God tacks in at the very end of this verse, playing the harlot. One commentator summarized that idea because he's speaking allegorically. Um, Really, this was his relationship with them. He loved them. And they were uh, like an unfaithful wife. And one, one commentator made this. He said, this is allegorically speaking. But an allegory connected with reality. This idea of them playing the harlot. Many of the pagan and Canaanite idols honored by the Israelites were essentially sex cults. Honored with ritual prostitution. Their idolatry was often connected with sexual immorality, with the use of male and female prostitutes. It was a cesspool. And that's what Israel went in there, and it was like God was anticipating it. He knew when you're going to go in. In fact, he even warned them ahead of time. I am going to give you this promised land. It's yours for the taking. It's a land which flows with milk and honey, and I am going to give it to you. But he challenged them. In fact, listen to what he said way back in Deuteronomy chapter 12. He said to Israel, long before this event and what would happen, he said, These are the statutes and judgments which ye shall observe to do in the land, which the Lord God of thy fathers giveth thee to possess it, all the days that ye live upon the earth. Ye shall utter, listen to what he said, when you go into the promised land, He said, you shall utterly destroy all the places wherein the nations which ye shall possess serve their gods, small g. You shall utterly, upon the high mountains, upon the hills, and under every green tree. That's, whenever you hear these pictures, and this is what Jeremiah is talking about in verse 20, he's talking about their idolatry. He's talking about all the, he's talking about Baal, which is plural, Balaam, Ashtaroth, Moloch, all the gods of the Canaanites, which were no gods. They're made up. They're images in their imagination. And uh, with it, all kinds of wicked immorality. And, and this, these phrases are part of that. So he says, um, Upon the high mountains, upon the high hills, and under every green tree, and ye shall overthrow their altars, and break their pillars, and burn their groves with fire. Groves was a, another place where they practiced their cultic uh, false religion. 
uh, burn their groves with fire, and ye shall hew down the graven images of their gods and destroy the names of them out of that place. He'd said that ahead of time. His, one of his greatest concerns, and this is part of the covenant. I'm entering into a covenant with you. You are my people, and, and I want you to worship me. We have a relationship now. And sure enough, they go into the promised land and they become enticed. And instead of obeying Deuteronomy 12, instead of remembering that and saying, you know what? And if, let's, think, let's say they did that. In fact, they did at points. In fact, during Jeremiah's ministry, King Josiah issued reforms, the, re- the reforms of Josiah that uh, he went down and tore down the high places. And they had a time of revival. But apparently, as what we're going to see in a few minutes, it, it, some, some assume and think that, well, it's probably right after Jer, uh, Josiah died that they went back into their old ways and they started worshiping false gods. But God told them ahead of time, listen, you are my covenant people. We have a relationship. We have a thing. Now, you're going to go into this promised land and it's, I'm blessing you with it. This is a land I own and I'm giving it to you. I want to have that. I want to continue this covenant relationship. You're my special people. But I, I'm, the biggest thing is I don't want you forsaking me and going to false gods like all the gods these people worship. So when you go into the land, first thing I want you to do is just remove all the idol worship. It'll be too much of a temptation for you. And you are mine. And they didn't do that right away. And in fact, they, they started looking around at all this idolatry and they started being enticed by it. And they thought, wow, this is pretty nice. And this, not their complaining in the wilderness, this forsaking of the covenant is what God took so personal. And that's why he brought judgment upon the northern tribes, Israel, by raising up Assyria Remember, God will often use pagan nations to bring judgment upon his people. Uh, he, they, even wicked people like Assyria, Syria, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, Babylon, which would be the one that Judah would be judged by, they were called God's servants. And if you're just reading through the Bible initially and you come across like Nebuchadnezzar, my servant, you'll think, oh, he must have been a real, he must have been a God, a, a man of God. He was anything but a man of God. But God, you know, the Bible says the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. As the rivers of water, he turneth it whithersoever he will. Don't forget that. That's not just kings. You say, well, we don't have any kings, so I don't have to worry about it. Everyone that's in authority, and, and historically, even down to wicked King Nero, or, you know, Nero, during Paul's time, God is in charge. And sometimes he doesn't give us the leader's that will help us, or that we need, he'll give us the leaders we deserve. And, and that's what happened with Nebuchadnezzar. He said, I'm going to judge you, and I'm going to bring up Nebuchadnezzar. I want you to submit to Babylon. And they could never get that in their minds. They could never accept that chastisement. And we'll see that through the book of Jeremiah. They had times where they, um, they thought they knew better than God. Uh, they'd ask Jeremiah, and then Jeremiah would come back with not what they wanted to hear, uh, and they would just follow their own way. So, they go in to the promised land, and they get engrossed and and engulfed in the wickedness. And now look at verse 23. 
We've already seen some, verse 21, 22, some of these illustrations I mentioned that we looked at last week. Verse 23, how canst thou say, I am not polluted? So that was their response. And now remember, maybe they were thinking of the reforms of Josiah. You know, maybe they were thinking because there was a time there when they they were part of Josiah's reforms and he went in and he demolished the, the Baal worship and the Ashtaroth, he destroyed the altars, and there was a real time of revival. So a lot of these Jews were part of that. And, you know, obviously they weren't totally on board with these reforms because they went right back to them. But they were still claiming, how can thou say, I'm not polluted. I, I'm not polluted. I've not gone after Balaam. Can you imagine that? And then, so God lays the evidence out. By the way, remember we said earlier that um, throughout the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament, and back in, in, in Bible times, all kinds of literature that they've uncovered, there is this legal form, they call a rib pattern, which the word rib, I think, is the Hebrew for controversy. And there was a, a literal legal form format they would follow to lay a charge against someone legally. And so when somebody rebelled against an authority, that authority would bring this charge and it would follow this pattern. And, and all of chapter 2 and much a lot of the other uh, chapters in Jeremiah follow that pattern. And, and so here's verse 23 is the charge. So I have not gone after Balaam. They're like, well, what are you talking about? I, I, I've not done anything wrong. And he says, see thy way in the valley. Know what thou hast done. Now the valley, that is so critical that you and I understand what he's talking about. The valley. See thy way in the valley refers to, ever heard this? The valley of Hinnom. Ever heard of that? The valley of Hinnom was um, a deep gorge that lied to the west and the south of Jerusalem. And in Jeremiah's time, it was the place where idolatry and all kinds of hideous deeds were done. Uh, the worship of Moloch, sacrificing their children in the fire. All kinds of things, all kinds of wickedness happened in the valley of Hinnom. So much so that when Jesus would come, by Jesus' day, the valley of Hinnom had become their basically their, their refuse pile, their junk pile. There was, apparently they... they it became the, the trash heap of Jerusalem and they would just have a continuous fire burning. And in the New Testament, the word Gehenna, which Jesus would use to refer to the fires of judgment, he would use that as a picture. The Valley of Hinnom, which is Gehenna, uh, he would use that to refer to the judgment that's coming. But it was just a wicked place. So when God says, see thy way in the valley, uh, he is reporting uh, and, and accusing them of the evidences right there. You can't hide it. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 7 and 2 Kings chapter 23. We see in the valley of Hinnom, Baal worship. We see the worship of Moloch and passing their children through the fire, which, which was just horrible. So the Lord is laying it out. But what's Israel's response? Just like the adulterous woman. In Proverbs 30 and verse 20, remember, uh, the Bible says in Proverbs thirty twenty, such is the way of an adulterous woman. She eateth and wipeth her mouth. That's a picture of her partaking in sin and lust. She eateth and wipeth her mouth and saith, 
I've not done, I've done no evil. I've done no wickedness. And that reminds me of, you ever see these home videos? Kids are so cute, aren't they? And I've seen a zillion of these videos of a little kid, a little girl, who's got chocolate all over her mouth. Or a little boy, too. You know, there's anybody. Little boy with chocolate all over his mouth. And the mom catches him, maybe with his hand in the cookie jar. And she's videotaping it. And she's saying, what did you do? And the kid doesn't realize he's got evidence all around his mouth. And he's just like, I didn't do anything. Junior, whatever, did you... Did you eat a cookie? No, mom. You know, he's, he is totally off. He's like, I've not done anything wrong. And it's, I mean, it happens so often. And it, that's kind of precious, you know. But this is, this sadly is like this. Israel's like, we haven't done anything wrong. And God's sitting there looking. Uh, look at the valley. Look at the valley of Hinnom. There's the evidence that you have forsaken your covenant. And this was very, understand this, God's, God is not this vindictive God that's just, you are in deep trouble and he is, he is so losing his temper and just so mad. Understand this, that there's a heart of God in this that loves these people. They entered into a covenant relationship. He wants to walk with them. He wants to bless them. He delivered them and provided them through the wilderness, sustained them miraculously. He has invested in them. And the fact that they have not been satisfied in, in him. Not, they've forsaken the fountain of living waters, as he said. And they've gone after something that cannot satisfy. And this, this breaks God's heart. And again, hence, he sends Jeremiah, uh, probably the most tender-hearted, from what we can understand and from what we have, probably the most tender-hearted, compassionate, uh, emotional prophet that felt everything that he preached. That was that was God's last choice. Last, it's going to be your last warning. It's your last prophet, and this is how I feel. I think God's saying He's saying I'm going to send someone. That's just He's going to be broken because I'm broken. That's an amazing thing that our God emotionally would share would respond to us. Isn't that amazing? You know, in the New Testament, we have pictures of that too. Like, you and I can grieve the Holy Spirit. We can quench the Holy Spirit. And, and God uses these emotions that he has, and he's given them to us, and so he uses these pictures because he wants us to put ourselves in his place, as it were, and understand that we've got this loving God that just wants us to walk with him. That's, and and, and he's, he's appealing to that. Of course, they don't get it. They said, how can thou say us I'm not polluted and have not gone after Balaam? See thy way in the valley. Know what thou hast. Now look at verse 23. Here's kind of some weird things we talked briefly about last week. Middle of verse 23. Thou art a swift dromedary. Wow, there's what we talked this morning. Now, you all know that word, right? Everybody knows what a dromedary is. I mean, i got one in my house, you know. A dromedary is a camel, a she-camel. And uh, what we have here in verse 23, Thou art a swift dromedary traversing her ways. Then verse 24, A wild ass used to the wilderness. Now, this so he's using two animals that they were very familiar with. The Arabian camel, the she-camel, and then the wild donkey. 
And they were very different, apparently. This, God is using this to, to tell Israel or tell Judah, you know, this is how you are. Now, they're, they're, he's talking about them. Uh, remember, he's using, I want to be as discreet as possible, uh, he's using their, their baser passions when an animal is in heat. You know, he's, he's talking about that. And apparently the, the dromedary, the camel, uh, is very mild and gives very lev- little evidence. You know, there's certain times of the season, during mating season, uh, and apparently the camel, uh, and I've never, I've never, I don't even think I've ever seen a camel. Uh, but from what I read, and what we believe Jeremiah's talking about here, they're very mild. Contrast that now to verse 24. A wild ass, used to the wilderness, that snuffeth up the wind at her pleasure. This is in her occasion... Who can turn her away? So here is this donkey, the female donkey, that when it is mating season, is uh, she sniffs in the, she's trying to pick up the scent of the male. She races down the road in search of the male, uh, and she is almost violent, the way it's been described. That um, she is so, she just loses all control. The male donkeys don't even need to seek out a female donkey because... Of the way they operate. And this is God saying, that's you, Judah. That's you. Uh, one Arab proverb says the, this of the female donkey. She is intoxicated with the scent of the male. And uh, another writer says, under such circumstances, the males need not weary themselves chasing the female donkeys because she is bent on chasing them. Uh, so it is a very vivid picture of Israel lusting after the Baals, the false gods. And uh, they, they and, and it's sad, because let's go back to that picture of God says, you've forsaken me. You've forsaken the fountain of living waters. For what? You've followed after broken cisterns. They can't even hold water. These, these gods that you worship, Balaam and Ashtaroth and Moloch and you know, the gods of the Canaanites, they can't satisfy like I can satisfy. I'm the, I'm the living waters that you can drink from freely. But of course they've forsaken him. Uh, and now we come to verse 25. He says, Withhold thy foot from being unshod and thy throat from thirst. And this is something that, that the commentators and, um, you know, there's some disagreement here. Some think it is a reference to the, um, and it could be that it could be a reference to the, the Canaanite worship. As you know, they, I mentioned they had temples where they had all kinds of immorality and prostitution. And one of the things they would do is they would, you had to take your shoes off before you'd go into the temple because they said it was holy ground which is, is offensive to God, uh, but you know that, that could be a reference to that. And, there, and he's saying, withhold thy foot from being unshod, thy throat from thirst. Other people say it's just a reference to the, the, the prostitute that is running after, um, uh, after men, fulfilling lustful desires. Um, but clearly, he is challenging them to stop doing what they're doing. And it's clearly connected to their pagan worships because that, that's what God's hitting on. That was the violation of the covenant. And now we close with this, this part here. Look at the end of verse 25. Here was their response. Maybe you've gotten to this point sometime. 
He said, there is no hope, they say. No, for I have loved strangers, and after them will I go. This is just, they're waving the white flag. They're saying, no, there's no hope. You know, they, they have, perhaps, and if you kind of put it all together, you know, Israel's relationship with Jehovah was up and down, up and down. You know, they would, God would, would chasten them, and they would turn back to Him and, and cry out for mercy, and then they would walk with Him only to turn away again. And maybe it had to do with those reforms from Josiah. And maybe that was like the last straw where they're like, Okay, Josiah, we're right behind you. We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna worship Jehovah God. We're going to worship Yahweh. And then they failed. And they're at the point now where they just say, No, there's no hope. No hope. No, for I have loved strangers, and after them will I go. I might as well do it anyway. You ever felt like that? Not, not talking about following you know, Canaanite gods, but uh, I think a lot of Christians can relate to this. I want you to think of this. Just look, there is no hope. There's an English word that is a combination of those two words. No hope. And like many of our English words, they come from the Latin, um, formed out of the Latin, and the word is a negative, and then the word for hope, no hope. And it's the word despair. Despair. And that describes these people. They were in despair. Now, it's interesting. They're saying there is no hope. You know, we've already done it. We're just going to go after, we're going to go lusting after the Baals. Uh, We're going to go chasing on them because, you know what? We're too weak anyway, so we're just going to give in because they have no hope. So much of this, and we're probably not going to go here tonight for time, but so much of this parallels some of Hosea's message. Hosea was a prophet sent long ago to the northern tribe with basically the same message, using this idea of an unfaithful spouse. In fact, I share this with you, that God even had Hosea marry a prostitute named Gomer because uh, he, wanted, he wanted to get Israel's attention. That was radical. I mean, that was radical. And, and poor, poor Hosea, you know, he had to be faithful and love a woman that was not faithful to him. And that's exactly what was happening with Israel and God. God was faithful to them. He wanted them. And he sent that. And they, they rejected it over 100 years ago. They gave up on God. God brought judgment. They were now in captivity. And now God sends Jeremiah to, to uh, Judah and he used some of, some of these same pictures. In fact, this phrase, the end, end of verse 25, There is no hope, no, for I have loved strangers and after them will I go. The title of the message, by, by the way, I think I'll give you the title of the message now that we're soon wrapping up. It's called, What's the Use? Uh, because I've known, you know, I've, I've, I've been tempted to say that and feel that. And I know a lot of God's people have. You know, you, you battle something and, and you just say, you know, what's the use? And that's what Israel said. In fact, this, this seems to be a theme because down the road in Jeremiah chapter 18 and verse 12, he repeats it. Listen to Jeremiah 18 and verse 12. And they said, there is no hope. But we will walk after our own devices. 
And we will everyone to the imagination of his evil heart. They just said, I give up. I quit. That's what they said. How sad. So I was thinking of this phrase. Knowing what the word despair means. It literally means again, what? No hope. And how do we say it? You say, oh, that person is filled with despair. And I thought about that. So what are you saying? They're saying they're filled with no hope. Which to me, doesn't it mean you're empty? <laughs> like if, if there's no hope, there's the absence of hope. It's nothing. You're empty. But yet, this word, you know, it came to be a word later on from Latin again, but it, folks, it's its own word because it's its own experience. Now, though it means no hope, it's not like, okay, you've got someone here that has hope. He's like, I am looking forward to something. I am counting on this happening. I've got something to look forward to. I'm, I've got hope. You take that away. Now he doesn't have anything he's looking forward to. He's just hanging out. You know, he's just kind of neutral. I've got no hope, but, you know, that's not the idea of the word despair. It's just like a, you know, hey, what are you, you excited about anything? Nah, just hanging out. Are you, you hoping that God's going, no, I'm not, not planning, I don't think anything's going to happen. I'm just hanging out. <laughs> that's not despair. Despair is its own feeling, and literally it's, it's not an emptiness of just hope, folks. It's literally, in fact, there's a phrase when this fir, uh, term first came into the English language, it was uh, the counsel of despair. In other words, despair actually is something that can fill us and it's what, uh, it, it's not a neutral thing. It's not like, okay, I'm just hanging out. I'm, I'm not, I don't have hope because I'm not plan- hoping on anything happening. I'm not looking forward to it. It is literally, it is this feeling, it's a counseling that makes you want to quit. I quit. What's the use? And that's what Israel had. They had despair. And it wasn't just that they were giving up on God. They just they said, you know, what's the use? What is the use? We've tried it before. I shared with you, I've shared with you many times. And I have no idea who this there was a senior group at, at a Christian school that I was a part of that I loved and walked, you know, part of the church. And this Christian school every year would have a senior trip to the wilds. And you've, you've heard me brag about the wilds. I love the wilds, as you know. It's, it's a Christian camp. Uh, there's one in North Carolina. That's the one that started. It's the one where Tom Farrell would preach, and millions of people would I mean, people get saved all the time. And then they opened one up 10, 15, 20 years ago in New England. Rand Hummel's the, the director there. And I just love that ministry. God, that's where we met Morris Gleiser. I never even heard of Morris Gleiser. And when I brought my kids there, they responded. In fact, recently, on a Wednesday, I was, uh, just this Wednesday, I was talking about um, letting other people get the credit. And I remember when my kids came back from the wilds and they were so fired up. And you know what the last thing in my mind was? Well, what about my preaching? <laughs> you know, the first, I was just, these, my kids, I, I, they were trained. They loved Morris Gleiser. They connected with him. And I realized, you know what? God's going to use other people other than me. I mean, they got to sit and listen to their dad every week, you know? And they just connected with Morris Glaser. And I love that guy. In fact, he's been here. And you know, many of you know, he's coming 
in September of 2024. <laughs> we got to get it on the plates or get it on the thing. Um, but you know what? I know that you folks are going to be, you, those of you that have not heard Morris Glacier, you're going to love him. And praise God, you know, I am so grateful that God puts people like him and like the wilds. So let's get back to the wilds real quick before I forget this. So God has used the wilds. And um, so there was a group going. This was before, I, long before I had kids. And uh, many people I knew would get saved under the wilds ministry. And there was a senior class that was going. And apparently, and I only heard this secondhand. I had no idea who the kids were. So whoever the guilty party is, you know, I'm not condemning them. No bitterness. But on the way there, they made a covenant together. And it, must, it went something like this. You know, we go to the wilds every year. And, and you know, we always get emotionally stirred up. And, and then we always make, you know, we'll walk the aisle or we'll make some commitment to the Lord. And then... You know, we go home, and like two weeks later, we all fail. So let's, let's do this, everyone. Let's enter into an agreement that nobody responds to the message. You know, let, because we're just going to fail anyway. And that, see, that tone, and, and so they did that. And, uh, you know, I don't know, maybe somebody rebelled and went forward or responded to the message. But that's, in a sense, that's what Israel's doing. They're saying, you know what? We tried reforms with Josiah. You know what? We tried, we tried this before. And we just keep failing. And they, they responded based on the counsel of despair. And they gave up hope. Again, their response was, there is no hope. No. And here, here's what despair was. For I have loved strangers. And so after them I will go. Now, folks, that is what the devil wants you to do, doesn't it? And he will use that. He will use that, whatever your besetting sin, if you have certain things that you tend to fall back on, those are the things that he is the accuser of the brethren. And he hasn't changed. He's probably the one that whispered in their ears. <laughs> you, you want to get right with God? Just think of how well that went last time. Yeah, oh, that, wow, you lasted three weeks last time, you know. And, and he gets you, he is the accuser of the brethren, so that whatever hope, whatever excitement, whatever motivated us, no, I'm not going to give in to this, we would throw it out the window. And that's exactly what happens. I want to remind you as we close, the Bible tells us in the New Testament let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap, if we faint not. Now, you know what that means, to faint? That's the, no, that's the despair, no hope. But God promises us. He, he understands we're going to get weary. He says, don't be weary in well-doing. And then the promise. He's not saying, listen, it, you, you know, don't worry about it because it's, it's never going to come back again. No, he says, don't be weary while doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. James 4 and verse 7 says, Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Now here's what I close with. There's a verse in Proverbs that is a blessing to me because through all of this mire, you know, I think of the darkness that overcame Judah. They didn't even see the clouds 
over them because judgment was lurking. The judgment, the wrath of God was coming upon them. And God would even tell them through Jeremiah, it's going to be Babylon. <laughs> That's where the judgment's coming. And so they start looking to Egypt and they look to other nations for the rescue. And he just wanted them to turn to him. But you know what? Through that whole thing, that whole darkness, they had a light in their very midst and they didn't even realize it. His name was Jeremiah. Every day Jeremiah got up and put his boots on. I don't know if they had boots. Put his robe on and preached to them. That was God saying, I still love you. And I'm giving you another chance and another chance and another chance. There's a verse in Proverbs. Proverbs 29 and verse 18. We'll close with this. It says, where there is no vision, the people perish. Now that word vision, has. Uh, this is one of those verses in our Bible study. Those of you that are doing our hermeneutics and Bible study uh, Sunday school. Um, this idea of where there's no vision this is a term which is specifically speaking of uh, a revelation, word from God, literally a living revelation. Where there is no living revelation, no perceived contact between man and God, the people perish. And then the contrast. Yet, but he that keepeth the law, happy is he. So those who don't have revelation, those who aren't getting a word from God, where God, you know, is not speaking to them, they're going to perish. And there were times like that. In 1 Samuel chapter 3 and verse 1, the Bible says, And the child Samuel ministered unto the Lord before Eli, and the word of the Lord was precious. That means rare. Precious in those days, there was no open vision. That's the same vision that's talked about in Proverbs 29. Where there is no vision, the people perish. And during this time, when Samuel ministered to the Lord, God was not speaking to his people. He did not do that regularly. There were only several times where God went down and really communicated with Israel. So there was a real silent period. In fact, that's what sets up the story. Remember at nighttime, uh, Samuel's sleeping, and all of a sudden he hears Samuel. <laughs> and Samuel thinks it's, uh, thinks it's Eli, and he goes and wakes him up. Did you want me? No, it wasn't me. Happens a couple times, and he says... I think God's trying to talk to you, and, and God was. And then in 2 Chronicles 15.3, it says, Now for a long season, Israel hath been without the true God, and without a teaching priest, and without law. So where there is no vision, the people perish. You know, we look at Jeremiah, and we look at his message, we look at Judah, we look at what happened, and it, 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 we look at their hopelessness. And we could say, what, what an empty time. But I submit to you, the fact that God sent that man and he was preaching to them every single day and he was faithfully ministering to them, pouring his heart out, calling them to repent. Folks, they didn't perish because they had that living representative before them. Now that's what you and I are called to do to the people in our land. We are the Jeremiah's. We are some people's last hope of a relationship with God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, help us. Help us to be the Jeremiah's of our day. Help us to, to have that passion. Father, it is not fun to have a broken heart. It is not fun to not get response. Uh, but like Ezekiel, Father, we know that 
Uh, Jeremiah just needed to be faithful, and he was. And Father, your love for the people of Judah could never be called into question. Because if it is, all they need to do is is present Jeremiah. And, And God, your love for them was clearly embodied in that man. And Lord, your love for people today in America, as America gets so dark, your love is through your people, your ambassadors, ambassadors for Jesus Christ. What a blessing, Father, that that name probably never came across the lips of Jeremiah because he didn't know Jesus Christ. And you and I, we not only know him, but we have a relationship with him. Father, help us to be the Jeremiahs of our day. Help us to bring hope to people that have no hope. And Father, we'll thank you for it. We pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen.